Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Samuel Adams Returns. Those anti-federalists absolutely got it correct. This is Tom Navolis, your host. And today we are going down not just the mirrors of history, but a deep dive into ancient history in that for now, for today, this very time that we live in, we're seeing uh, what most people will call a cultural revolution. We're seeing words and expressions and articles written, uh, speeches given, and pundits crying that of the death culture or the culture of death in relationship to the uh, arguments about abortion. Whereas we're also seeing uh, these heavy pressures and all that is going on uh, in the military, in society, in the government, in business around all of these uh, multi-lettered confusions, LGBT plus Q, R, S, T, L, M, N, O, who knows what Z is. And all of that is being woven into every aspect of economy and society in such ways that what I want to propose to you, very critical, as I have taken the time, and, and this may be a several series on this for this programming. And that is as the title, if you received a newsletter, which you can sign up for at samueladamsreturns.net, you can get the newsletter there, as well as see all the references for this particular program and any program that I put on. But the fact is, the title for this week is A National Religion. Political Sex enabled by the First Amendment. This is serious. Everything else we're seeing is a fog that is out there. It's a fog. It's taking in as you're going through, you see the lights reflecting against those droplets that are there, and you can't distinguish what is reality in so many different ways. How could it be? that people want to kill children? How could it be that men want to sleep with men and women with women and try to change into something that, for most Christians, would be that which they were not created to be? Well, it's not just cultural. It's not just cultural. You have to clearly understand that it is religious. This is religion without any question. No different than I'll talk to you about in the course of these. We most likely won't get it to it today. But even the environmentalism is religion. So everything that you have with windmills and solar panels and electric vehicles and all of that is religion. 
As I've said on many different programs over the years is that all politics is religious. All politics is determined by our belief systems, our understanding of a worldview of what does that mean to live within a various society. And quite frankly, various societies have different political, sexual environments. But today, we're going to take a look at the national religion in the United States from delving back into history. And I I just want to be clear with you that most Christians won't take and identify this because they are accepting of this national religion in so many different ways. But in that, it has, in many respects, people talking about this idea of mental disorders, one way or the other, that these are all issues of mental health. In the second segment, so those of you who do not get the second segment, I highly recommend that you do go to samueladamsreturns.net because I'm going to take you to a book where one chapter was definitely laid out on mental health and how mental health was going to be used as a destructive means in society, in America, in every aspect of taking apart a moral Christian idea of rules, regulations, morality and its simplicity, and instead instituting the paganism of the past. That's what we have. We are reinstituting the paganism of the past. And in the resources that I have for you, you'll see that there is a historical marker when Christianity did come into the world. The work of Christ defeated, in so many ways, all that is out there that is anti-Christ, anti-Christian, anti-God, anti-morality, anti-family. But sadly, what we have, we even have Christians that are fully accepting, as I mentioned before, of all of this national religion and help promote it especially within the context of the liberal churches. Now, once again, I'm not going to be able to delve into all of that here in this first segment, let alone this program. So I think it will be a series of a couple programs to help to uh, digest this. There's a lot of work out there, but I, I don't think people are wanting to hear this anymore. And for sure, 
I know this, except for a very small percentage of Reformed pastors, this isn't talked about in the church, let alone from the pulpits. Look, really puzzling. So we're going to kind of do some surveying through this whole um, programs, and I say programs plurally, in that we'll take a look at America at some point in time, even in the 1700s. We're going to talk about the anti-federalist warning against effeminism, effeminine men, effemininity as it will affect the political scene and the security of a nation. We're going to take a look at where we saw all of the Gilded Age come about and what did that mean. And we will eventually look at our modern time from both that mental health issue as well as all that we have. And the mental health issue, let me frame that again for you, is that the destruction of our moral constitutional republic by utilizing the mental health mechanisms. And then I'll give you that last tunable area of the national religion in reference to environmentalism and in all that is happening and what we're seeing on the new Green Deal and all of that. That's all, That's quite a bit that we're going to take on. But in these last five minutes, I want to start us off here with just a, a couple points right out of the promo is that I am saying that the First Amendment allows what is going on because of the perversion of the First Amendment. And then more so, at the end of everything, what I want you to understand is that since I would have to go back to Jimmy Carter, I would have to definitely say Clinton, I would have to definitely take it even through the Bush is son and father and definitely through the Obama administration and sometimes earlier, some of it even in the Reagan administration is that the national religion is a violation of the First Amendment. But because in our country, if we go back to even Madison and Jefferson, allowing for tolerance of conscience to include religions that already had political association, including sexual political association, we ultimately get to where we are today. So with that, I want to definitely let you know that uh, we are, again, in a pagan religious culture that is adopted within the context of the federal government, hence it is violating the First Amendment by inculcating and instituting 
these religious practices and paying for them at the way that they are and forcing them into every aspect of society across the republic is a violation of our religious liberties and the Establishment Clause within the First Amendment. Now, you're not going to find any lawyers that are going to go ahead and be willing to take that on and argue that. Not even any of them. They, they go off into the fog. And what you have them chasing are the reflective droplets in the fog of all these other specific little issues and take, instead of taking and getting to the core of it. So I, I just spoke us down to the last two minutes in this segment, but let me talk to you, and we're going to go back to Greece and Rome and look at all the different pagan cultures before Christ and how they exercise absolute power, especially in a cruel and oppressive way being despotism was the norm within those various societies. We're going to take a look through in ancient Sumeria, where a young king was expected to show that his relationship with the goddess was strong by betting her chief priestess in full view of his subjects. In fact, it was the ancient political environments, especially in Rome, where power was expressed by being fully and dominantly sexual. This meant having sex with men or women and never being an effeminate, rather being a full warrior dominant leader of people. And that's all in the references. So my argument here as we're getting ready to close and we'll pick this particular aspect up in the third segment because in the next segment we're going to be talking about that tie point of mental health in all of this and the destruction of the morality of this nation. But my argument is uh, specifically uh, for this administration and that the religion of paganism uh, has become instituted and nationalized in such a way that it totally violates what we have in the First Amendment. No, nobody else is going to talk about that. Sam Adams actually talked about religion and instituting religion into the nation and that it's a violation of our rights as free-thinking and godly men and people but come on back in the next segment as we discuss this. Welcome back to this second segment of Samuel Adams Returns. Those anti-federalists, they did. They really pinpointed it. And as I finished the last segment out, uh, one comment that I made, there was in Rome in particular that to be a powerful person and the idea of the political sexuality in that environment meant having sex with men and or women and never being effeminate. Now, what we have done over the many years here in the United States is that we have taken and we have evicorated men. We, actually, let me, let me take it back to, and be just uh, 
truthfully crude is that we have cut the testosterone makers of men off. Not always physically, but mentally, emotionally. And we have taken and neutered what it means to be a boy and grow into a man because so much happened in these women movements. Now, that is also from pagan religious connections. And depending in which society that is, is where the woman becomes dominant and the men become the footsie tootsies, except when it meant to go to war, and then you were stuck out there to be engaged in a battle so that you'd be taken care of. But that's not the biblical Christian view of manhood. There's a lot of good books in that, a lot of good information out there, and I will always refer you to what I believe is some of the most appropriate if you ask me. So go ahead and send me an email at tom at samueladamsreturns.com. But if you want to see everything that we have in the archives in this program and references, then you need to go to samueladamsreturns.net because that's where that's at. So you're asking me, all right, Tom, what's, what's this whole gig on this mental health stuff that you're talking about and what, what's that all about? Well, I want to take you into a book that I've talked about over the years and I highly encourage people to read. Uh, it's difficult to get a copy of. I will put a link to a PDF uh, up for you. The book is called None Dare Call It Treason, written by John Stormer, and this was written and, and released back in the 60s. And I told you I read it in the late 60s as well. Now, chapter 9 is specifically on mental health, and there's no way I'm going to get through the whole chapter here, but I want to bring out the highlights to you, and I want you to pay attention to this. So I am going to read from chapter 9 in different areas, and we'll talk about it, especially in relationship to my past experiences on our county mental health board. So in the opening of the chapter, it says that uh, the pretense is made that to do away with right and wrong would produce uncivilized people, immorality, lawlessness, and social chaos. The fact is that most psychiatrists and psychologists and other respected people have escaped from moral chains and are able to think freely. That was written by Dr. G. Brock Chisholm, who was the first head of the World Federation of Mental Health and also the first head of mental health section in the United Nations. So what we're seeing right now in what he is saying, there's no pretense. When we take out morality... We have uncivilized people shooting one another in Chicago and Philadelphia. We have blatant immorality everywhere because people do not have a context of truth. We have that lawlessness, and we have social chaos everywhere. 
So I want to take you through what else Chisholm had to say because uh, he became actually the head of the World Health Organization of the United Nations at one point in time. And in an address that he gave in October of 1945 to a large group of psychiatrists and high government officials. Now, I want you to pay attention because I'll tell you, I'll get into a little bit of all of the power sexuality in Washington, D.C. You know, that that young uh, congressman, that one-term young fellow, uh, Cartwright, he was absolutely correct about all the orgies and all of the whoring around and all of uh, the sexual activity in Washington, D.C. has become another Rome, another Rome in so many ways. Even specifically, as you'll see in an article in one of these programs to which a homosexual journalist talks about that the only reason that he was able to get the great amount of information that he could on different interviews was because he was a homosexual and he was trusted with the information. Now, when I was in the military, I was instructed that you could not trust a homosexual because they would blabber all over the place. You should not go around hookers, whores, prostitutes, because they could be spies. It's amazing that we have the fullness of that. Anyway, back to Chisholm, to these 1945, these group of psychiatrists and high government officials. He said, what basic psychological distortion can be found in every civilization in which we know anything? The only psychological force capable of producing these perversions is morality. The concept of right and wrong, the reinterpretation and eventual eradication of the concept of right and wrong are the belated objectives of nearly all psychotherapy. Are you getting that? So when I was on the mental health board, when we were talking about moral, Christian, biblical, religious counseling, all of the state people, and I will refer you to an article that I wrote in relationship to what was happening on our county mental health board, but all of those people appointed by the state were of this opinion that only mental health can solve all ills. And they wanted nothing to do with true biblical counseling. Chisholm goes on because he was obsessed uh, for years with the idea that instilling concepts of right and wrong, love of country and morality in children— by their parents, is the paramount evil. In another speech, he said this, the people who have been taught to believe whatever they were told by their parents or their teachers are the people who are the menace to the world. Now we have perverted the teachers to the extent that they are the new 
preachers, the pastors, the Sunday school, oh, I'm sorry, the daily school teachers of the national religion. Do you get that? The educational system is the church for the new national religion of paganism. So what Chisholm was all about in the concepts of morality and right and wrong, and he considered those to be a neurosis, he explains it this way in in, in this particular speech. Even self-defense may involve a neurotic reaction when it means defending one's own excessive wealth from others who are in need. There's the mental health philosophy from 1945 on why the Second Amendment should not exist. You have no right to self-defense. You're neurotic if you do. That's why they're putting all of these red flag laws into place. It goes back to this, to Chisholm. So Chisholm proposes that psychotherapy be used to eradicate such neurosis as a man wishing to defend his own private property. And this is what he says. There must be an opportunity to live reasonably comfortable for all the people in the world on economic levels which do not vary too widely, either geographically or by groups within a population. This is a simple matter of redistribution of material wealth. Now, he wants to do this through the mental health processes. He wants to do it through taking and making sure that we treat that neurotic individual that wants to defend himself and his property. You're mentally ill, you know, if you want private property by redistribution of wealth. So Chisholm and his mental health associates plan to achieve this world health distribution by the means of, what, democratic government taking away the wealth of the Americans because we're all crackpots after all. And he talks about how he expresses this view with the World Federation of Mental Health and the World Health Organization. Are you seeing what the World Health Organization is doing? 1948, a prominent men, American mental healthers included Dr. Georgia Stevens, medical director at the National Association for Mental Health, Dr. Daniel T. Blaine, and Dr. Harry Stack Sullivan served on the preparatory commission in this regard. They came up with this as their goals in a declaration that they published uh, in the United States by the National Association for Mental Health. Principles of mental health cannot be successfully furthered in any society unless there is progressive acceptance of the concept of world citizenship. World citizenship can be widely extended among all people through applications of the principles of mental health. At a major turning point in the world's history, there is an obligation on social scientists and psychiatrists to attempt this new formulation. Now, you have to understand that's what social-emotional learning is about, is taking these principles from 1948. Pay attention. 
1948 and implementing it through social emotional learning into into our schools. They already did a lot of that in the experimentation in higher education. My friends, we're not going to be able to finish all of this, but you have to understand, here's what Chisholm was talking about on the obligation of reaching people for clear thinking and talking and writing. Teachers, the young mothers and fathers, the parent teachers associations, youth groups, service clubs, schools and colleges, the churches and Sunday school, everyone who can be reached and given help toward intellectual freedom and honesty for themselves and for their children whose future depends on them needs to have this mental health so that they clearly understand we do not need to worry about right and wrong, private property, or loyalty to country. No loyalty to country. What is that uh, That uh, basketball player with the uh, LeBron James now backpedaling on America and telling that woman that's in prison in Russia for being a druggie that, oh, she should stay there because America's nothing. I probably misquoted him completely. But I want you to understand that this all moved forward with the PTAs, with other teachers associations, and all that was happening and being published. You see, Sam Adams talked about inculcating our children with God's word, with virtue, with truth, and helping them become citizens that loved their country. That's what the Anti-Federalists were saying. So come on back as we continue into our third segment as Samuel Adams returns. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to this last segment of Samuel Adams Returns. Those Anti-Federalists, they did. They got it right. And this is Tom Novolis, your host. As we look into the seriousness of our national religion of paganism, and I wrap into that environmentalism and all of that. You can go to the references at samueladamsreturns.net for this program as well. As I mentioned in the first segment, we will be doing more of a series on this because there's so much to it. They have to take you step by step, especially any of you so-called, as you would call yourself, a Christian who are listening to this on Christian radio stations you have to clearly understand that it's not just the behavior of these groups. This is a national religion that is being supported financially by not only the Obiden administration, but it goes back for decades. It goes back a long time, even somewhat into the presidencies of the 1800s, but not to the extent that it is in our present time. I touched in the last segment, so those of you who are only getting the first and second segment of the program, I highly encourage you to go to the SamuelAdamsReturns.net and listen to the second segment as I talk about the institutionalization of mental health such that it set up especially in the 20th century, 
it set up our present through the mental health industry. You've heard me talking about the mental health industry before, and this is it. This is the culmination of what began in the beginning, in the 40s in particular, of this 20th century. But as I promised, we're going to go back in history so that we can really start to um, describe and look at some of the uh, political, religious significance, and not just in Rome. We're going to delve real fast through this one resource on Hippo Reads that takes us into these other cultures, if you will, and what they had going on. So when we take and we take the first dive, let's look into this one. It was not sinful to have sex. An ancient Babylon uh, Greek historian, Herodotus, wrote the account uh, of the form of worship of the goddess Aphrodite that compelled women once in their lifetime to offer herself up to a stranger. The ritual would proceed, and it goes through how that happened, what it did, and she could refuse no man. In refusing anyone, that was considered a sin, and that was very interesting. And it was also very politically charged. Then it w- Here's another one. The way to cement the king's relationship through love, not war. This was something that we talked about in ancient Samaria, where that young king was expected to take and bed, sleep with, have sex with the chief priestess in full view of his subjects. This was very much important during that time in Samaria. And when you look at Samaria, you look at Israel, you look at the sins of Israel. But let's talk about, just for a second, in a power play sin of Israel, Samaria, and the surrounding area, when we take and we consider abortion and the killing and sacrifice of children, that was a sacrifice to Moab. And the Moabites and other cultures around, other tribal regions around Israel, that was a common practice pass their children through the fire, or sacrifice them completely. So here we have Samaria. So you wonder what was happening there with the kings of Israel when we look back through that. And we're going to touch on that in another program, just a tidbit, because it's real interesting is how many uh, Jewish writers allow for all of the perverse sexual activity by the way that they term it. And when I mean term it, I don't mean a hermit. I mean how they uh, reflect upon it in their time. Here's one that'll shock you. Being pregnant at a wedding didn't cause the lady guests to clutch their pearls in shock. In the 12th century in Great Britain, cohabitating before marriage was so common, it was the norm rather than the exception for a bride to be pregnant on her wedding day. In fact, families in the Middle Ages were so concerned with carrying on bloodlines that they were encouraged cohabitation and to ensure that the young lady could become pregnant. 
So then the wedding was concluded only when the bride was visibly pregnant. In later centuries, the Catholic Church changed its view, and this was in the Catholic Church of all places. It changed its view and began to combat the practice, but that was not fully stamped out until the Marriage Act of 1753 in England. Men ran around whipping women with leather thongs to promote good luck and fertility. Now, this is what February, this is what Valentine's Day was all about. Instead of buying flyers and all of that at a Roman festival of the uh, Lupercalia, it was taking place on February 15th, and it survived. And so it's a variant, obviously, of the um, in, in Valentine's Day. And in Czechoslovakia, it involved a different kind of celebration, love and fertility, to honor Lupa, the mythological wolf, who was believed to have suckled Romulus and Ramus, the founders of Rome, the celebration in spring for releasing of good luck and fertility, naked youths and uh, magistrates ran through the street, striking the often willing women who lined up for the right, regardless of their current state, whether they were married or not. Those who were barren hoped that the blows would render them fertile, those already pregnant hope for an easy and safe delivery. One that I want to talk about a little bit more specifically here is the bacchanalia. The sex and politics were expected to mix. And this was the core, the root of it, and it began in Greece. And we think of the uh, bacchanals as cheesy, Greek-themed parties hosted by college frats. But in ancient Greece, the celebration was in honor of Bacchus, the god of wine and ecstasy. And it was popular, subversive events that involved so much hotbeds of political conspiracy that they were eventually banned. And in particular, I have a paper on what happened with that in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire, that's when they were banned. When they were in Greece, it was no big deal. You know, rock and roll, party on. But Romans, in particular, banned this form of great um, celebration, orgies, drunkenness, and the political involvement, the political ties that hasn't stopped in so many ways. I mean, I've got papers, documented papers and articles about all of the orgies that actually happened in Congress, in, in, in the House of Congress, not just Congress people, but this was, especially in the 20s, it was happening in chambers in Congress, the building the Capitol building. All these drunken events were happening then. Well, it was really interesting when I was looking at uh, the baccalarian, if you will, uh, practices that uh, there's an interesting article that's in the resources here is the containment of Dionysus religion and politics in the baccalarian Back in a, excuse me, the Bacchanalian affair of one eighty of one eighty six BC, and 
what was going on with all of these uh, rights were so atrocious that it was a cult. And it was actually stamped out by none other than the Roman Senate, who also had their own orgies and other sexual activities. In fact, in Rome, uh, it was, as I mentioned in the first segment, to be powerful in that whole political or military environment is that you'd have sex with whoever you wanted, uh, men or women, and you have to understand that the youth were looked at as beautiful, but you couldn't touch someone under the age of 15. But look at now, we're trying to transgender kindergartners, people five and six years old. At least the Romans and their perversion had enough class, if you call it that, to not have sex with boys younger than 15. But what happened here when they outlawed this worship of Bacchus, Dionysus, that it set the fundamental in such a way that when Christians came about, and this paper brings it out very interestingly, is that you have to consider then that the uh, Bacchanalia helps us to understand why the early Christians were likened to Bacchants. They were likened to that cult within Rome, because in Rome, to be a Roman, to be part of the Roman Empire— you had to practice all of the sexual practices of Rome. That was the big issue that Paul had in Corinth. Corinth was a core, a root, uh, and we'll get into that uh, next program, is that it was a hotbed of sexual Roman activity, not just for the general populace, because who? The emperors would go there for their sexual orgies and activities. So when we start looking at very deeply into the tie points of sexual political activities, we have that here in America. We have it very clearly. But let's talk about three awful features of Roman sexuality in these last two minutes. I know it's hard in this article here that I have from uh, Chalais is that uh, Christians, you who are listening that are Christians, have a hard time understanding uh, this whole idea of these sexual ethics. But our sexual ethics were also perverted, and I'll talk about that more specifically next week in a couple Pew reports that not only deal with it uh, in all of America, but in certain cultures as well. Sexual dominance in Rome, that was what it was all about, to dominate. Uh, sexual acceptance of pedophilia, as I already mentioned, that was very prominent, and that was all in poetry. It was all in the culture. Uh, it was everything that we're seeing today in the whole LGBT environment. Roman sexuality had a low view of women, 
But now women have a low view of women because of all of the woman's movement has destroyed men and effeminated them to the extent that whatever in relationship to women. You can read the articles here for yourselves on concubines and all of that, sexual promiscuity and societal stability. That was key in Rome. That was key. And we'll pick that up next week. But ladies and gentlemen, what I want to leave you with is what we have right now is a violation of our First Amendment in that with everything that is going on, in fact, is that we have a national religion that is driven by all of these, which we as Christians would call perversions, but it's, guess what? It's normal throughout the world for centuries. Sam Adams understood all about this and talked about it, so come on back next week when Samuel Adams returns.